I'm Jessica Denson, host of Lights On with Jessica Denson here on the Midas Touch Network. Last week, an esteemed young lawyer made history in the Supreme Court, arguing that it should affirm the decision of the Colorado Supreme Court that Donald Trump is an insurrectionist disqualified from holding office. That lawyer, who we're going to meet in just a moment, fielded a barrage of questions from justices seemingly in search of an off-ramp for sidestepping the Constitution when it comes to a man who threatens to terminate it all, with some of the toughest questions coming from two justices he used to clerk for. No small task. But the hardest question now lies with those justices themselves. Will they uphold their oaths and affirm Donald Trump's disqualification from office as mandated by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment? We've had the privilege of following this litigation every step along the way with the team responsible for the landmark ruling out of Colorado at Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, as well as with their co-counsel and Harvard Constitutional Law Professor Lawrence Tribe. I have learned, and I think our audience has learned too, how vital this case is to the survival of our democracy. It is my great pleasure today to be joined by Jason Murray, the Colorado lawyer who made the historic oral arguments in favor of upholding Trump's removal from the ballot. Jason, first of all, congratulations for making history and welcome to Lights On. Thank you so much, happy to be here. So a few days now have passed since you made that uh, that performance, that uh, argument, and I shouldn't say performance, since you made those oral arguments in the Supreme Court. Um, I know it, you've been in the Supreme Court before, but as I as understand, this was your first oral argument. How do you feel? Uh, first of all, just wanna ask you how you feel a few days out. Well, uh, I feel a lot of different ways, you know, first, <laughs> Uh, it's, it's certainly a, a point of pride to, to have the opportunity to argue such a momentous case before the Supreme Court and to be able to represent such a courageous group of, of plaintiffs bringing this challenge to enforce the rule of law. So I, I really appreciated their trust in me to handle the case. Uh, you know, second of all, I, I think I, I very much feel like the Supreme Court was struggling with the issues presented in our case, that they were looking for a procedural way to decide this case without addressing the merits. And one way to view that is to say that there, there didn't seem to be a lot of skepticism on the Supreme Court about the central theory of our case, which is that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection against the Constitution. And there didn't seem to be a lot of skepticism about our point that that meant he was ineligible to hold office under Section 3. So, you know, the landmark rulings that we got below in the Colorado trial court and the Colorado Supreme Court seem likely to stand on those issues as it seemed the court was really more concerned with the procedural questions of whether or not uh, that disqualification meant that a state like Colorado could exclude Trump from the ballot. I definitely want to address that skepticism that most observers have, have noted. Um, but before we do, um, you just as a reminder to our viewers, this came up through the Colorado courts. And as you mentioned, um, the Colorado Supreme Court ruled in your favor. Um, your colleagues at Olson Grimsley, your law firm, argued this case before the Colorado Supreme Court, and they faced some really tough questions there too, did they not? That's absolutely right. A lot of commentators were convinced that we were going to lose after the Colorado Supreme Court argument because they asked a whole lot of difficult questions and I think one of the things that shows is that you don't ask a court to do a really hard thing like we're asking the courts to do here 
without expecting some really hard questions. And this case raises a number of them, partially because this provision of the Constitution has just never been addressed by the U.S. Supreme Court before. So there are a lot of unresolved issues here. And uh, I, I certainly hold out hope that as the U.S. Supreme Court continues to dig into these tough issues, they'll realize, as the Colorado Supreme Court did, that there isn't a, a compelling off-ramp here. Yeah, there has been so much speculation as to how they might rule against you, but I think there has been not enough speculation as to the consequences or how that how they will arrive at that. I mean, you talk about tough questions and questions that really have not been demanded of us prior to this in history, because frankly, we haven't had a Donald Trump insurrectionist um, prior to this in history. Um, but, you know, I think that what I really look forward to getting into you, with you, Jason, is how we could possibly ignore this section of the 14th Amendment, um, how we could possibly avoid or evade a constitutional mandate and what that, what the consequences of that would be for the future of our democracy. I think it would be really troubling. You know, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment was written for moments like this. It, it was written to defend our Constitution from people who had shown themselves faithless to their oath to protect the Constitution by, by being willing to engage in violence against it. You know, it came up after the Civil War when, when people realized that all these people who had been fighting against the Union on the battlefield were going to be continuing that fight in the halls of government, trying to achieve within government the dismantlement of our constitution that they weren't able to achieve on the battlefield and they were very clear at the time they were putting this provision in the constitution to defend the constitution not just in the immediate aftermath of the civil war but for all times to come to protect our country against those who would destroy it from within so i think if we all choose to look the other way here and not enforce the constitution's command it's going to be corrosive to our democratic system. Yeah, one of the criticisms of this case, which I, I don't think is legitimate, but continues to come up, and it came up among the justices as well, is that um, removing Donald Trump uh, per Section 3 is somehow a disenfranchisement of voters. Um, you know, Jason, this is a little bit personal to me because I happen to be a former supporter of Donald Trump. And I only wish that there was something back in 2016 when I believed this man to guard me from his con and from his fraud. And it turns out now that he has, um, you know, very unfortunately been given that high honor of the presidency, um, now there is a safeguard because of his actions that prohibits him from being able to have that opportunity again. And um, I don't know about you, Jason, but I really see the enforcement of Section 3 not as a disenfranchisement of would-be voters for Donald Trump, but a, a real protection to them, a protection from to them uh, against someone who threatens to, to not follow his oath and defend their rights um, if he is given this opportunity again. So I would say two points about that. I, I certainly, I couldn't agree more. Number one is that the best way to enforce Section 3 is now, before anybody goes to the polls. One of the things that, that I was left scratching my head about a little bit after the argument was the appetite to say that states can't enforce Section 3 now, that we have to wait for Congress to do it, that maybe we have to wait until after the election 
to do it because Section 3 is about holding office, not running for office. To me, that would be a recipe for mass disenfranchisement because you'd be saying we don't get to tell people whether Donald Trump is eligible to hold the office until after everyone's gone and voted. And only then we're going to enforce this qualification and potentially disenfranchise everybody. So the case we were trying to make in the Supreme Court was the most pro-democracy thing you can do here is, is rule on Trump's eligibility now so that we can have an election between two people who are actually eligible to be president. And the second point I'd make is the argument for keeping Donald Trump on the ballot from democracy is more than a little bit ironic because we already saw what happened back in 2020 when he was on the ballot and when he lost. The reason why we're here is because Donald Trump tried to disenfranchise the American people and over 80 million people who voted against him by violently overturning the results of an election that he had lost. And so to say that somehow democracy requires that he be given the chance uh, to run again and to potentially attack our democracy during the electoral process again, I, I just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Absolutely. That last point you made is something I try to remind our viewers of every single time, lest we forget. Uh, we tried to leave it up to the voters and Donald Trump tried to do, deprive them of that right. Um, I, I do want to play a short clip here of your answer to Justice Jackson um, when it came to her question about what would happen if they rule against you. Um, because I think it really gets to these, these kind of very serious quagmires that we may find ourselves in. Um, if they don't uphold the Colorado uh, ballot ban. Let's play that clip. If we think that the states can't enforce this provision for whatever reason in this context, in the presidential context, what happens next in this case? I mean, are, are, is it done? If this court concludes that Colorado did not have the authority to exclude President Trump from the presidential ballot on procedural grounds, I think, I think this case would be done but I think it could come back with a vengeance because ultimately members of Congress w may have to make the, dis the determination after a presidential election if President Trump wins about whether or not he's disqualified from office and whether to count votes cast for him under the Electoral Count Reform Act. So eh, President Trump himself urges this court in the first few pages of his brief to resolve the issues on the merits, and we think that the court should do so as well. What would that even look like, Jason? Um, finding out whether to cast votes for him under the Electoral Count Reform Act, is that something that's black and white? Not at all. This is a, a really untested area of law that to me would be a formula for, for constitutional crisis. But, you know, if let's assume Donald Trump wins re-election. Then under the 12th Amendment to our Constitution, it becomes Congress's job to count the electoral votes. So assuming that he won a majority of the electoral votes, the question would then become, do those votes count? And, and if, if those votes were cast for a person who cannot legally take the office, there's certainly an argument to be had under existing law that those votes are not regularly cast by the electors because they're cast for someone who's ineligible. And so you're gonna have raging debates in Congress about whether or not those are valid votes for an ineligible candidate. And if you had members of Congress saying, we're not gonna cast those, uh, you know, that, that would raise a whole bunch of legal challenges. It would re-raise the issue of whether or not Donald Trump is eligible. And if he's not eligible, whether Congress can nevertheless cast the votes out. 
to me, resolving these issues after the election with all of that legal uncertainty about how to treat those votes would really be calamitous. And that's why we urged the court to resolve the issues now. And would that happen on any particular day in January of 2025, Jason? Sure, sure would. It would happen on January 6th, which is the date designated by law for Congress to cast the electoral votes. And unlike January 6th of 2021, where there was absolutely no legal basis whatsoever to throw out any votes cast for President Biden, here there would be real doubt under our, our Constitution, our highest law as to whether votes cast for an insurrectionist could, could actually be counted. This really just does sound like a recipe for disaster. Um, a, as you mentioned, inversion of the scenario we had, but nonetheless, um, you know, real crisis that we could be leading ourselves into. And that is with the scenario that Donald Trump wins the election. Um, you look at the alternative, which is that we allow him to remain on the ballot. He then loses the election once again, and yet uh, tries to foment another January 6th in the same way he did in 2021. Every indication points to the possibility, the likelihood that he will try to foment another January 6th. Um, isn't what you're trying to do right now, I mean, I really see your litigation efforts as prophylactic. You are trying to enforce Section 3 now to prevent these problematic outcomes. I mean, uh, allowing him on the ballot until that last moment, even in the case that he loses, is a recipe in, for disaster itself, is it not? Well, that's absolutely right. You know, one of the questions we, we kept getting at the U.S. Supreme Court is, wouldn't it be chaotic to allow states to decide these issues and, and for us to declare a leading presidential candidate ineligible to be on the ballot? And the answer is, yes, it would. It, it would certainly be chaotic, but that's because there's no good outcomes here. And the reason there are no good outcomes here is because we have an unrepentant insurrectionist who still has a huge base of popular support in this country and is trying to claim the right to run the country again. And you're absolutely right. You know, it would be a disaster if he wins, particularly because he's ineligible to hold the office. If he's on the ballot and loses, it would also be a disaster because we've watched that movie before. We saw what he did for, you know, three years ago, and he hasn't changed his stripes in the least. He's still out there justifying the actions of the people who attacked the Capitol on January 6th. He's already, he's still out there saying that those people are the victims of political persecution, that he's gonna pardon all of them, that they're American patriots, that they're American heroes. He doesn't regret for a moment what he did on January 6, 2021. So there's no reason at all to believe that if he loses this time around, he'll, he'll somehow respect the process. I think that's very unlikely. Yeah, Jason, and you began to touch on um, this this line of questioning from the justices that was that was very strong, and that is this concern about chaos coming from states making disparaging or uh, disparate decisions as to whether Trump has ballot access. Um, I really want to get, I really want to discuss with you this issue of states' rights, because it seems like a very dangerous territory the justices may be wading into to deny a state their right to administer elections under Article 2. Um, but before we do that, I just wanted to get your clarity. You said you, you said it is, it, it would be chaotic um, because states have different processes. Is there, if, if the 
Supreme Court rules in your favor and says, yes, Colorado has a right to uh, ban Trump from the ballot. Yes, he engaged in in insurrection. They applied this this definition properly. The trial court was right. Um, What could other states do the same or differently? I mean, how is how would a ruling in your favor um, guarantee or not guarantee that other states abide by uh, the same standard? It's it's a great question, an important question, and one where I, I felt there was some confusion among some of the justices at oral argument. If the Supreme Court decides in this case that the Colorado Supreme Court was right, and that Donald Trump is constitutionally prohibited from being president, the court would decide that issue for the whole country. This wouldn't be Colorado deciding that Trump is ineligible. It would be the US Supreme Court deciding that that President Trump cannot take office if he is elected. So that would decide the federal constitutional question for everybody. But then there's a second question, and that is how states run their own elections. And there, it's important to understand that even for candidates who everyone knows, everyone agrees, are are ineligible to be president, states handle them differently. In this election cycle, there there is a candidate who's running for office who was born in Turkey. He's not a natural-born citizen, so he's not eligible to be president. About seven states have said he can't be on their ballot. Some other states have said he can. And the reason they've said he can is not because they think he's qualified to be president, It's just because under their state's law, they don't exclude ineligible candidates from the ballot. They say anyone can run and then, you know, we'll let the process kind of figure it out if and when this person gets elected. Um, So there would certainly be some state by state determinations left to say, do we or do we not allow a disqualified insurrectionist on the ballot? But I think there was a little bit of misunderstanding that you know, if the U.S. Supreme Court decides he's disqualified, they're deciding that for everyone. And then the only question is what states do with that information. Yeah, I want to put, pull, uh, pick up on a couple of threads there, Jason, because that was such a glaring um, kind of mistake that I found the justices making there that somehow Colorado would be, be deciding for the nation. Um, first of all, as you said in your opening statement, Donald Trump disqualified himself. He disqualified himself to the country, to the world, frankly, um, on January 6, 2021, and in the month or two leading up to that. Um, his actions disqualified him. Do- uh, Colorado didn't in isolation you know, witness some event from Donald Trump and then decide to disqualify Donald Trump from the ballot. Um, so it really would be the Supreme Court. And this is the role. I know you were so trying to make this point. Um, this is really the role of the Supreme Court. Is it not to answer these questions and 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 establish uniformity? It's absolutely the role of the Supreme Court. And it's a role that the U.S. Supreme Court really hasn't shied away from in a lot of cases recently, whether it's on questions of abortion, whether it's on questions of, of the Second Amendment, right to bear arms, or or any number of other issues where the U.S. Supreme Court has said, we don't have to defer to anybody else. We don't have to defer to what states think. We don't have to defer to what Congress thinks or the executive branch thinks. It's our job as the court to interpret and apply the Constitution and say what the law is. 
And that's such a strong thread with, with this current Supreme Court that it was a little bit jarring, I thought, at argument to hear a lot of lines of questioning that suggested a, a reluctance to interpret and apply the Constitution as written. Yeah, you mentioned um, abortion. Of course, the decision on Dobbs remanded um, the right to the states to decide whether women have bodily autonomy. It is quite ironic that there now seems to be such heavy pushback on states' rights to um, engage in their Article II authority to administer elections. I This seems really, really problematic to me, as I mentioned a couple minutes ago, Jason, that um, there could possibly be some ruling that denies states' rights to apply qualifications in in the election process by removing candidates. I mean, they, they seem to be making this argument that states do not have a right to, enfor- to enforce any qualification measures against federal candidates, that they might have it against state candidates, but not against federal candidates. Um, can you explain why this is wrong? Well, a- absolutely. You know, some of the lines of questioning seem to be well, we're talking about the election of a national candidate, a president, so, so isn't that a national issue? And to that, I would say that argument is just directly contrary to our constitutional design. I mean, certainly you could imagine a constitution where we just have a national popular vote for the president and it's a national process, and that might even be a better system. A lot of people have said we should get rid of the electoral college and, and do it that way, but that's not our constitution. We have a, a state-by-state process under the Electoral College, where each state has a certain number of electors based on a combination of their, their you know, senators and representatives in Congress. And the Constitution, Article 2, says states can appoint their presidential electors in any manner that they see fit. For, for a lot of our history, we didn't even have presidential elections. States, the, the legislatures in the state would just get together and vote for their electors themselves. And so there's a long history of states controlling this process top to bottom. And as part of that process, there's a long history of states excluding from the ballot people who can't, who aren't eligible to be president, for example, because they're not a natural born citizen or they're not 35 years old. And until this case, really no courts have have cast real doubt on the, the power that states have to exclude uh, candidates from the ballot who aren't eligible to be president. And, and you know, I don't see why we should have a different rule for Section 3, and I don't see why we should have a different rule for Donald Trump. Absolutely. I think a lot of us um, listening last week on Thursday to these oral arguments were just kind of maybe frustrated, maybe flabbergasted at this kind of parsing through procedure um, on something that is so glaringly obvious, something that is a big picture, um, consequential issue where they seem to be finding or looking for um, just any little thing <laughs> to get these justices possibly out of their duty to their oaths, as I suggested in the opening. Um, one of those is is something I expected to be much less prominent, and that's this discussion about whether Donald Trump um, took an oath as an officer. Um, 
and is therefore pro- prohibited from holding office, being that the presidency is an office. These these continuing questions as to whether the presidency is an office or whether Donald Trump um, was an officer when he took the oath of the presidency. Um, actually, Justice Jackson also engaged in this line of questioning, um, and she made the comment, why should we construe it against democracy? And I thought that was kind of really shocking um, to suggest that including the presidency in Section 3 would be a would be construing it against democracy. You gave a very thorough answer as to the history of the um, the drafting of Section 3 and why Donald Trump is in fact an officer. Do you see any legitimate off-ramp for these justices on that subject of office, officer? I, re- I really don't. You know, to me, this is an argument that makes for an interesting academic debate, but when you just state the argument, it, it sounds like it can't be right. And the idea would have to be that someone like Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy who rebelled against our country, you know, would be disqualified from being so much as postmaster or county sheriff but would be eligible to be the commander in chief. And what possible reason would there be to say that oath breakers, insurrectionists, rebels can't hold low level state office, but can run our country? Uh, Because that position would be the position where they could do the most damage to our country. So from a historical perspective and just a common sense perspective, the argument just seems to me to be a a complete non-starter. And in fact, the history makes very clear that everybody at the time that that Section 3 was ratified after the Civil War knew that it prohibited people like Jefferson Davis from being the president. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that even opponents of the 14th Amendment, people who were avowed uh, rebels, acknowledged as much. Now, they thought that was deeply unfair. There are some newspaper articles where uh, Confederate supporters complained bitterly about the idea that Black Americans like Frederick Douglass would be allowed to be president, but that former rebels, you know, white uh, rebels in the South would be ineligible to be president. And they thought this was deeply unfair, but they knew that was what the 14th Amendment meant. And certainly supporters of the 14th Amendment likewise said, you know, we can't just go around giving amnesty to everybody because if we do that, it means people like Jefferson Davis, who betrayed our country so deeply and painfully, could be president again. So that the history really, I think, closes that door. And if the court's going to go down that road, they're going to have a hard time explaining why why it's a result that makes sense, either practically or historically. Yeah, I think another one that they would have a hard time explaining is how Section 3 could not be self-executing. And there was a lot of discussion as to whether um, Congress somehow has to enforce Section 3, write legislation to make it applicable. Um, the There was this really convoluted argument from Jonathan Mitchell, Trump's attorney, um, making the oral arguments that uh, Donald Trump could not be disqualified now because Congress has the ability to remove such a disqualification. Uh, one of the justices, I think it was Alito, correct me if I'm wrong, um, came back to him and said, well, that's kind of like, you know, because a president has a pardon power power to pardon criminals, the criminals can't be charged and convicted in the first place. I mean, it's really kind of a ludicrous suggestion. Um, But just on the subject of 
Congress having to make legislation or somehow Congress being both the arbiter of ineligibility and the source of appeal and amnesty. I mean, there's a clear conflict there, isn't there? That's absolutely right. And it's, it's you know, normally we don't say that a provision of, a, of the Constitution that speaks in mandatory terms like this does, you know, no person shall hold any office. Normally, we don't say that those things are without effect unless Congress legislated. It would be different if Section 3 said, you know, Congress may pass a law providing that, you know, for the exclusion of oath breakers. Uh, you know, in that case, it would be a delegation of power and you'd say Congress has to act. But here it speaks in mandatory terms. It's unyielding. It doesn't provide any exceptions except for this extraordinary power of Congress to grant amnesty. And I think it would be perverse to say that Section 3 does nothing until Congress acts because it would sort of eliminate that high bar for, for amnesty. Congress could say, well, maybe we can't get two-thirds vote to pardon rebels. So instead, we're just going to repeal enforcement legislation by a simple majority. And then suddenly this provision is a dead letter and we don't even have to bother trying to get to two-thirds to excuse people. That's, that's clearly not the system the framers had in mind. The framers of Section 3 were very concerned to make sure that this went in the Constitution to guard the country for all time. And the idea that Congress could render it a dead letter so easily just, just can't be squared with that text or history. Yeah, um, you're talking about what this is signaling um, for all time. I see this decision not just as applying to Donald Trump in this moment, in this 2024 election, but really being an indication to any future president, any future potential insurrectionist of what they can or cannot get away with. If you don't have the ability, if states don't have the ability through this process, um, as, as your very brave plaintiffs have litigated this case, to bring forth ballot challenges and apply Section 3 as that categorical disqualification that it is, um, there's really no mechanism to enforce Section 3, is there? I mean, it really just becomes an excluded or almost, you know, removed section of the Constitution. That's exactly right. I mean, I guess the theory would be that the only way to enforce it is through a criminal prosecution for insurrection. But again, that just really can't be squared with the history or the thrust of why Section 3 is there. You know, Section 3 is in our Constitution exactly because people knew that there often isn't stomach to prosecute everybody who had engaged in insurrection or treason. I mean, they knew that there were hundreds of thousands of people who had fought for the Confederacy. There was no way they were all going to be thrown in jail. And so the, you know, the framers, the Republicans at the time thought we need something to go in our constitution to make, sh make sure that even if all these people are going free, we're not, they're not going to be in jail. Our country, our, our constitution is at least protected by making sure that they can't hold office again and tear our country apart. And I think the same goes, you know, going forward, if we rely on criminal prosecutions, which are so hard to bring and often so, you know, not brought, even when the evidence supports it. For, you know, because it would be too political, it would see, be seen as going after your political opponents, then I, I think Section 3 is going to end up being mostly a dead letter. And I think that would be a real danger for our democracy. Yeah. And the criminal insurrection statute is really independent of Section 3, is it not? I mean, they're mutually exclusive. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I think you mentioned um, the criminal insurrection statute came before Section 3 um, in the drafting. And 
I think something, Jason, that so many people get hung up on here is either a lack of due process or the, the, the concept of disqualification as some kind of criminal punishment, which it is, it is not. It is, this is a, a, just a, a simple civil penalty for having engaged in insurrection. We're not depriving Donald Trump of due process for applying this disqualification to him. Well, that's exactly right. It very much was understood not as a punishment, but as a measure of self-defense for the country. You know, we're going to leave you with all your liberty. We're not going to hang you like many other countries do to people who have engaged in treason. Uh, you know, we're not going to throw you in jail. All we're going to do is say, you know, you can't enter government again. And so in that sense, it, it was a real kind of lenient provision, almost an act of mercy. And, and you're on the due process point, you know, this is one of the baffling things where you, you see the media coverage and a lot of people talking about, oh, well, what about due process? And then you look at the fact that Donald Trump didn't even make a due process argument in the U.S. Supreme Court. And there's very good reasons why he didn't make it, which is that it sounds like a good talking point until you realize that he had a five day trial in Colorado. He had the opportunity to testify himself if he wanted. He had the opportunity to cross examine all the witnesses against him. He had the opportunity to present any evidence or witnesses that he wanted to in his own defense. And the reason why he didn't have any good evidence to present at trial in his defense is because he has no real defense, because his acts in inciting the insurrection were in plain view for all to see. They were on camera. They were on his Twitter feed. This wasn't something that happened in some secret back room where there might be some debate about what happened. We all saw it at the time. And he really has no way to dispute his own words or the consequences that followed from them that we all saw on live TV that day. Absolutely, Jason. Um, and this really is a case about oaths, isn't it? Section three is all about oaths. Each one of those justices that you stood before, two of whom you clerked for, Justice Kagan and Justice Gorsuch, um, took an oath of their own. And I've just been thinking a lot about oaths, and I, and I had our producer put together a montage of all of the oaths that these justices have taken. Before you leave us today, I'd, I'd love to play this. I will administer this uh, oath. Uh, repeat after me. I, Clarence Thomas. I, Clarence Thomas. Do solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. That I will support and defend that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Defend the Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will administer justice without respect to persons, that I will administer justice without respect to persons, and do equal right to the poor and to the rich, and do equal right to the poor and to the rich, and that I will faithfully and impartially, and that I will faithfully and impartially, discharge and perform, discharge and perform, all the duties incumbent upon me. All the duties incumbent upon me. And that I will faithfully and impartially discharge and perform. And that I will faithfully and impartially discharge and perform. All the duties incumbent upon me. All the duties incumbent upon me. And that I will faithfully and impartially. And that I will faithfully and impartially discharge and perform. Discharge and perform. All the duties incumbent upon me. 
all the duties incumbent upon me. That I take this obligation freely. That I take this obligation freely. Without any mental reservation. Without any mental reservation. For purpose of evasion. For purpose. And that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I'm about to enter. And that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I am about to enter. So help me God. So help me God. So help them God. Jason, what, is, what are your final thoughts as the justices weigh this all important case for history? Well, my, my final thoughts are that I, I hope that as they continue to dig into the legal issues here, they'll realize what so many of us uh, and so many commentators realized, which is that, you know, when people were, uh, when so many people are originally confronted with this case, there's a reaction of that can't be right. It can't be that some provision of the constitution that none of us had ever heard of before a few months ago is suddenly gonna have such a momentous impact on our nation. And that once you really start digging into the law and the history uh, here and understand why this provision is in the constitution, it becomes increasingly difficult to explain why that provision is not meant for exactly this moment in history. And that to, to refuse to apply it here would do a grave disservice to our democracy and write an important part of our constitution out of existence. And I hope they, they have the courage to realize that and rise to the moment here. Absolutely, amen to that. And um, we will remain hopeful that they do do that and they understand their role in history and uh, what it's going to mean for many generations to come. Jason Murray, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a really pleasure to meet you and your team. Oh, and before you leave, I wanted to let you know that your former professor, uh, Lawrence Tribe, wanted to send his regards to you. Oh, well, thank you so much. And I really appreciate you having me on. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today on this special episode of Lights On. You can find all the episodes of Lights On on my YouTube channel, Jessica Denson. Have a wonderful day and let your light shine.